An atom is about a million times beyond the limit of what can be seen by a human eye. If you were to stack six magnifying glasses back to back, each with a magnification factor of 10, would you then be able to see the atom? The answer, frustratingly, is no. Even if you had perfectly manufactured lenses and stacked them in the perfect position, you'll eventually hit an impassable limit. So what's the holdup? Well, visible light has a wavelength between 400 and 700 nanometers. If you try to magnify things below roughly the wavelength of the light you are using, the individual waves start interfering, and all you see is a blur. This is known as the diffraction limit, and is a firm roadblock prohibiting the imaging of anything smaller than about 200 nanometers with visible light. But you might have seen pictures of tiny cell parts, or even of atoms, which are on the scale of nanometers, far below the diffraction limit. This is possible by the use of electron microscopes, which leverage the fact that electrons have an effective wavelength a quarter of a million times smaller than visible light. So, we don't beat the diffraction limit, we just get a different threshold. In 2015, a group of researchers found a novel solution to this imaging problem. Instead of making better microscopes to lower the diffraction limit, just physically enlarge the details themselves to be above the diffraction limit. This is the foundational idea behind expansion microscopy, a technique where a polymer gel is introduced into cells, which then absorbs water and swells up greatly, increasing the size of all features of the cell. Then, a traditional microscope can be used for imaging, greatly reducing cost, increasing throughput, and allowing for a traditional contrast usage. One of the inventors of this technique, Fei Chen, was a graduate student at the time, and now runs his own lab at the Broad Institute researching spatial and temporal genomics. I first met Fei playing basketball and was thrilled when he agreed to talk about his work with expansion microscopy, his current research, and his research goals. Here is our full conversation. I really appreciate you coming out. <laughs> yeah, um, it's, I mean, sure. <laughs> I actually am, um, I have a really strong, well, not like a soft spot, not a soft spot, but like a strong interest in actually converting folks from going <laughs> from oh, engineering geez. or physics yeah. and into biology actually like really those are some of the funnest people to work with uh-huh. and um i actually have a lot of undergrads mit undergrads or harvard undergrads who who's majoring in like cs or okay engineering uh-huh. who come to my lab and i i try to advise them on how how to do that and what you know, what my experience has been in doing that. So I, I actually, that's why, like, you know, I was interested in, in talking. About oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, let's just get right into it. So you, you at Caltech undergrad, you were double E. Yeah. How did you, first of all, why did you choose double E back when you were, I don't know, 16, 17, 18, or whatever it was? How do you get into that? Right. I mean, um, I've always loved building things, like, just like, tinkering with things and uh, making them work. And, and you know, that's like, for, for me, the part in W that's the most fun. And I had a lot of fun doing electrical engineering at Caltech. Were you like hardware guy? Yeah, I was okay. a hardware guy. Yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I uh, all my roommates were at ease and we built a bunch of crazy stuff. And, and at Caltech, there's this, um, there's this, ex, there's this tradition of this thing called ditch day where, okay the seniors uh, put on this, like, basically, like, this elaborate, like, puzzle hunt okay. uh, for all of the underclassmen yep. once a year. And in there, there's, like, often, like, very elaborate construction. Okay. Um, like, we built, um, 
this, um, uh, this, you know, those Japanese video games where yeah, you sure. have to, not video games, just Japanese game shows where like you're playing like it's human Tetris, the shapes, yeah. the shapes you have to b- yeah. go into certain shapes, whatever. Uh, like we built one of those things, but it was like with a projector, and then it sensed okay. when people. Oh, nice. Uh, anyway, so this be this elaborate day long thing. So I so I really like building things. Um, and uh, that's you know E was really fun. Yep. But along the way, I um, there was a strong community. Uh, in electrical engineering at Caltech that, that was focused on building, like, things with biology, like synthetic biology. Those were, like, early days of synthetic biology. And it's, like, building circuits and cells or, or building circuits from DNA. Yeah. And and there was a lot of, like, some folks doing, like, information theory. How much, com- like, computing could you do? Could you build, like, a transistor with DNA? Yeah, uh, sure. And I got really into that. And that's kind of what bridged me into biology, Uh you know, I think there was like there, and there still is. There's a group of people like Eric, Niles Pierce and Eric Winfrey and and, hmm. and Richard Murray, and these folks were, yeah. um, they were really engineers, but they were trying to build stuff out of biology, in, yeah. in particular out of DNA. Um, mm-hmm. And so um, that really like opened my eyes to doing more huh. things in biology. So that that's that's kind of how it happened, actually. Okay. Yeah. As a fun kind of aside, uh, there was a paper that came out a few years ago of. Uh, using DNA basically as a particle physics detector. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was from George's lab? Or um, it was like a... Bu- no, was it? I'm not sure. I just saw it on archive somewhere. Uh, I see. Um, I'll send you the link afterwards. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it could basically just, you know, whatever comes in and change, changes... Changes, like mutates the Exactly, base. exactly. Um, yeah, I saw George had like a... Uh, a paper, not a paper, or maybe a, like a bioarchive paper, like archive paper, like that mm-hmm. for cosmic ray yeah. detection. Uh, Might have been that one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it's a co- cool idea. I mean, DNA is like um, an amazing substrate, right? Because we have these like really honed nano machines that <laughs> you know evolved over billions of years to let us manipulate them. Um, you know, it's like that's why people are excited about. I mean, it also had this crazy rich, dense information density, right? Yeah, and God, so yeah. DNA storage and uh-huh. DNA computing. I mean, there are some pretty exciting things. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So. Okay, you were doubly, and then eventually you ended up at MIT in Ed Boyden's lab. What was was there a, a learning curve for you on the biology side, or was that pretty easy for you? I, yeah, I mean, this is why uh, you know, as I said, I, I'm really interested in in getting folks who are um, passionate, excited about biology yeah. from the outside, maybe yeah. in because there is kind of there's so many different paths to yeah. get there, right? Sure. And um, you could be coming from um, physics or engineering or CS, and people often ask, like, "Oh, what is what do I what, what like textbooks do I need? Like, what what should I like? Yeah. What classes do I take to right. learn learn about biology?" Um, and you know, you asked about this learning curve, and and you know, I I think I I was lucky to have realized that in the middle of my undergrad that I wanted to do this, and so I I took a, a decent number of, of courses. Um, and, but looking back, I mean, when you think about it, um, a lot of courses aren't, you know, a lot of courses about teaching you facts. Yeah. And um, certainly that's not how engineering or physics courses are, are right? They're like teaching, <laughs> they're like telling you, teaching you how to like derive something from yeah. first principles. Yeah, right? exactly. Um, and I really like looking at the world from that way, but 
it's hard to derive biology from first principles. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, there is a level to that, right? Like, I think it's not that important to know the facts, but you, what you need to know are like, what are like the mechan, what are like some concepts that are really important, right? Um, you know, like the central dogma or like these, these sorts of things in biology that, that uh, often come up, uh, you know, um, and you can imagine making a course. I mean, I'd be interested in making a course. It's like a crash course in biology, right? That'd be pretty for, cool. Yeah. yeah. For engineers and, and, and physicists. Yeah. Um, and, and there's a lot of ways to like translate how you think about biological concepts into the, like the language of, 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 of engineers and physicists too, which I think would be, will, will be very interesting because often those courses, if you take a bio intro bio course at MIT, it, I, I haven't taken it, but at least at Caltech, it certainly isn't taught in the same language. And that's a really technical school. <laughs> right, absolutely. Um, and yeah, so the transition, so, um, there's two aspects about the transition. There's like the knowledge and I, this is true for anything, right? There's like the knowledge and the practice, right? Uh, the practice, the knowledge is easy to pick up, but the practice is like intuition about how you do experiments and how you think mm. about questions. Mm -hmm. That takes a long time, I think. Yeah. Um, and it'd also be great to think about how you can impart that to people in a more, you know, shortened timeline. Yeah, right, for sure. So kind of along those lines, when you... Um, well, first of all, how big is, is your group? So you have the, the Chen Lab on yeah. the road, right? Yeah, my group is about um, 15 folks. Okay. And it's uh, about five graduate students, five postdocs, and yeah. four or five staff. Okay. Um, and yeah, I mean, the graduate students, um, they all have like pretty diverse backgrounds. Mm -hmm. uh, two of them are have a background in biology, and then the other two have... Some of them have backgrounds in engineering, right? Sure. Like or like pure CS or math. Yeah. Um, and I, I think graduate school is a good time to make the switch. Some people also try to make the switch during postdocs. Um, you know, I have a I have a postdoc in my lab, and and her background was in like astronomy and, and okay and in, in for PhD and then like uh, mm -hmm. in um, biophysics for for sorry astronomy and undergrad and biophysics and got a phd and, and, okay. and, and, and so um uh -huh. and there's a lot of skills and that translate over we do a lot of microscopy so it, yeah aware yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah um how important is so one thing that i've seen in undergrad is a huge emphasis on kind of theory and tests and yeah. then when you get to grad school at least if you're at least casually involved on the experiment side knowing how to actually work in a lab and like knowing the actual experiment is a completely different set of skills. Right. Exactly. Um, what do you look for when you're looking for an undergrad? Um, like, like what kind of stands out to you? Like, what are you looking for in a kind of a set of skills? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I would say that you're right. There is this focus on, on theory, um, in undergrad. And, um, I do really think it's important to be exposed to lab, environments and I think MIT does that really well Caltech does that really well where there's these built-in undergraduate research programs um, I think there's just an aspect of thinking about problems like thinking about how to plan and like figure out debug things when things are going wrong that you can't pick up in a theory class obviously you need you need the theory um, 
And, you know, for undergrads who, who come to my lab, um, I'm actually just looking for folks who, who have interesting backgrounds, like, and who are pretty passionate, like, who, who seem like they're, like, excited about. Yeah, sure. Uh, and, um, and, you know, I've taken some undergrads who have never had, like, at least, you know, a couple of undergrads have ne- that have never had any experience in in biology, sure. like a pure CS guy, and yeah. and, um, and and we and who has an interest in them migrating over to the wet lab, and and we you know talk about questions like oh like how do you think about the problem, how do you yeah. debug when things are going wrong, and and I think that's actually really valuable for for them, and mm-hmm. even though they don't, I think these folks who, who who are transitioning it's super valuable for them yeah even if they don't really accomplish like any of the main goals of that project yeah um hmm. and i think it's valuable for the people in the lab who are mentoring them too because they get to see that like how to teach someone about the concepts of the project who who's like you know looking at it from a completely different perspective yeah. And sometimes you get insights, right? Like, oh, why don't we do it like this? And you're like, oh, well, I, I don't know. People have always done it, <laughs> done it this way. And um, it, it is, it's an interesting, it's, it, I think it's good for both parties, even though, um, you know, not much like, you know, like people think about projects as milestones. I think, you know, you know, if you don't think about that, like there's like no like real milestones have been met in those projects. But I think a lot of like, you know, thought and just, changes in way of thinking happened uh, which is great that's really interesting so yeah. um it sounds like now you're kind of more in more of like a mentoring role than yeah, for sure how, how do you feel about that because it was only you know a few years ago or so that you were a grad student right? yeah exactly yeah. um yeah i mean mentorship is great i mean i uh as i said i, I really enjoy this aspect of, of um you know mentoring people through the process of, of figuring out um biology um and obviously i also have lots of folks who have a background in in biology um and i think the best part about mentorship is you know you get to see people um really like come into their project right like they uh they probably start very um green and then you know you you can see the growth um and it's often very rapid, and, and I think that's pretty gratifying. Um, in terms of, like, learning how to be a mentor, I mean, it's, like, hard job, I think. You have to pick it up on the fly. Yeah. And, and I think that the hardest part about that job is, like, every person is pretty different. Like, there's yeah, not, like, sure. there's no algorithm. You can't, like, <laughs> just, like, put yeah. people into the algorithm. And um, I think you maybe learn, like, archetypes. Maybe there are, like, groups and different types of people and, and um, you get to learn how to optimize your mentorship for that type of person. But I'm, I'm still learning how to do that, I think. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I'm not sure if you ever finish learning it. Um, yeah, I, I, it's, 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 it's a hard, but I think it's a rewarding experience. Would you say that's kind of the hardest part of your job now is figuring out the mentorship stuff or is it kind of um, technical aspects? No, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think... That is definitely, um, that's definitely the part of my job that I spend the most time on. Okay, interesting. Um, yeah. And it's 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 hard in the sense that um, it takes a long, you know, it, there's a long arc to it, and it's a you kind of have to figure it out as you go along. 
Um, yeah. Okay. Awesome. Um, I, I want to get into your current research, but before we do, I hope that it's okay if I bug you a bit about expansion. Yeah, we're here. So, um, yeah, I, I learned about this just like, I don't know, a couple months ago or so. Yeah. It's, it's the sort of thing that I was like, oh, wow, like how did no one else think of that? Um, could you, yeah, give like a quick description of what it is and... Um, yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, how, how it works. So... Expansion microscopy solves this this problem in microscopy of um, how do you take images beyond the diffraction limit, right? Uh, because of the wave nature of light, you can't resolve um, features or uh, that are closer than um, maybe two hundred and fifty nanometers apart, and and that's uh, just because like the wavelength of normal light uh, is, is maybe like 500 that. nanometer like yeah so, so then the wavelengths the waves start kind of like overlapping is yeah the idea? exactly okay. and 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 so you um the the limit is like the wavelength over two basically okay so um and the um 250 nanometers sounds pretty small uh but if you think about biology like a lot of really cool stuff happens at 250 nanometers like a mitochondria um, is about like one micron wide or, and then a synapse is about like a hundred to 200 nanometers. So if you wanted to look at, you know, how the proteins are interacting within a synapse, you need to go and look at it at greater than the fraction limit. Um, and so, uh, this has been tackled with like clever and, and really cool engineering on the optics side or on, uh, chemistry side by by other folks and you know those people there was a Nobel Prize that was awarded just you know a couple years ago on that um, but you know those sorts of approaches generally didn't scale to um, tissues where there was a lot of autofluorescence sometimes you had to do single molecule imaging in those uh, cases and um, it, it was it was technically challenging and so so we kind of had this idea of, I mean, it was a crazy idea at the time. I mean, you, you say that right now, I think right now we say, oh, how has no one like thought about this before? I think before it happened, the idea, you know, when you propose the idea to people, people were like, oh, that's not going to work. Right. So I mm, think there is this kind of inevitability to it when yeah. you like tell when you see it from the other side. Yeah. Um, uh, but there's, before you get it working, there's kind of like there's a lot of this doubt about like, oh, is this ever gonna work, right? And, yeah, sure. And and the idea was just like, instead of making better microscopes or like coming up ways of like uh, beating the diffraction limit that way, what if we just made the features like if we separated out the proteins in the snap so that they were further away from each other, um, then you would be able to resolve them on a normal microscope. Um, now. If you're, if the point is to measure like the spatial organization of of, of things, which oftentimes is the point of microscopy, <laughs> although it doesn't have to be always, uh, you kind of want whatever this process that's like separating them to be isotropic spatially, right? Or like to be to preserve the relative positioning. Sure. And and that was actually the challenge. Yeah. Uh, so how extension microscopy works is that you take some cell. Let's say you have a cell and. And these are dead cells that are fixed. And uh, what this fixation process is a chemical cross-linking process that uh, basically preserves the location 
of proteins. Um, it comes from like embalming, actually. People used oh, wow. to embalm, uh, not like you know, if you go to like a, I mean, this is a little bit more, but if you go to a morgue. <laughs> yeah. People are like embalmed in like para formaldehyde. That's yeah. like a really strong smell. Yeah. And um, and that's the same uh, stuff they use in this fixative. Huh. Um, and it chemically crosslinks the proteins such that they're the cell is dead now, but it's still retained in, the, like, the position of things are retained. Kind of, like, frozen in frozen. sort of thing. exactly. Yeah. And so you take the cell that's been, like, processed like that, and then you, um, what you do is you form a hydrogel inside of the cell. And, and uh, how this hydrogel works is that uh, you diffuse in the mon- these monomers, and it's in C2 polymerized into this network of polymers. Um, and... The only the, the key special thing about this hydrogel is that there is this monomer group that's quite charged, and um, when you form it in high salt, the charges are shielded. But then when you wash it out in low salt, you get um, you get this osmotic swelling because there's these charges that are fixed in this network. Yeah, sure. And uh, you get this like strong osmotic pressure to balance out the relative concentration of those charges. And what that manifests as is this physical expansion of, you know, the, pol- the polymers of the hydrogel, when they're formed in high salt, they, um, you know, just like entropically are like in this tangled, you know, configuration. And then uh, when you put them in like low salt, um, you know, there's this osmotic swelling, the, you know, it's you stretch out the polymers. And physically that, manifests as something um you know if you cast one of these hydrogels you can get like a 100x increase in volume and um this stuff has been actually really well studied uh here you know for a long time and actually here at mit chemistry uh since the 80s uh these you know um super absorbent polymer hydrogels and 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 they're used in in different sorts of applications uh you know the famous one that people always talk about is like baby diapers but you know they're used they're used in a bunch of like like real world materials applications um so we co-opted this hydrogel uh to physically swell the tissue or cell um but but the main thing difficulty is that you know you can't you know, if you just think about a piece of tissue and you wanted to, like, stretch it, you know, 5x in each direction, um, you might expect there's some, like, you know, resistance to that. And it might tear or break or, or these sorts of things. Sure. Um, and in fact, when we first did expansion microscopy on cells, you saw that. You saw, like, actually, like, cells getting, like, torn apart. Hmm. Um, and... The rest of the process was actually figuring out how to basically cross-link the proteins onto this hydrogel network, like connect them to the hydrogel, mm-hmm. and then deconnect them from each other so that you're like forming this cast. Huh, okay. And then you expand the cast. And then that turns out to be very isotropic. It's the isotropicness like of that is governed by like the mesh size of the polymer network. Um, what do you what do you mean by the what do you mean by that exactly? Oh, so like, um, you know, this polymer is formed like uh, through this polymerization process that kind of 
you know, connects up these monomers with cross-linkers, and you get some, like, random, like, statistically governed distance between, like, how many monomers are between each right. cross-link. Sure. Um, and you can imagine, like, each, uh, like, a group of two polymers connected up to four cross-links, or four polymers connected up to, to four cross-links forms, like, a square, right? Sure, yeah. And, um, and like, the mesh size is, like, Maybe like something like the characteristic size in okay. space yep. of that square uh-huh. when you're forming it, and um, people have characterized this for for polymers uh, of this type, and it's it's something like five to ten nanometers, okay. and you would expect that if you got really close to this mesh size, this grid size, uh, you would incur errors in the expansion process because you know um they're like you know you'll just get a lot of like statistical fluctuation right. between how many monomers are between each, yeah. each point right sure but that gets averaged out at length scales much larger than okay than that so basically because your mesh size is on the order of five nanometers and you're hoping to resolve things that are on the order of like 200 nanometers um right so it, it's that, not a problem exactly actually okay. we we try to resolve things so they ex- so what happens is that the tissue gets physically expanded uh-huh. and then um now what was 200 like what was 15 nanometers is now 200 nanometers right. and so now we'll see things at the 50 nanometer got it length scale yeah which yeah. is still a lot smaller than five nanometers yeah so exactly the isotropic exactly isotropicity i don't know the the fact that it's isotropic is still holds in that regime yeah exactly okay um one other question about this is um do you is it important at all what exactly the expansion factor is um or not really i mean it is important uh depending on what you want to do in the sense that like the expansion factor kind of sets your resolution Mm -hmm. um and then Um. Um, there are some physical constraints to the poly- to the like gel hydrogel towards expanding. Okay. Um, yeah. The maximum you could probably expand it in one with one hydrogel is about tenfold in linear dimension, which is a thousand times in volume. So I mean, if you just think about that, like the hydrogel is ten percent or like something on the order of ten percent weight. Um, volume weight when you form it right and a thousand times in volume would be like now you're at like uh point oh one or yeah point one percent by weight right, right. so like most of this thing is water now yeah. wow. and so that's like the just like the physical property of the thing sets that factor right um we settled for something like 5x expansion okay um because of both the mechanical properties of the hydrogel and also kind of the resolution we wanted to hit subsequently i mean there's been a lot of work that's developed versions which are like about 10x expansion or there's these iterative like you can imagine expanding it and then like casting another hydrogel into the (laughs) and expanding it more uh, to like 20x or and and that's something that um the reason why a lot of folks are are into that really high resolution uh is that they're there's some ideas about using, and, and we were very we were very interested, and in, I think Ed's group is still very interested in using yeah. it for connectomics, yeah. uh, where you might want to approach like EM level resolution, mm-hmm. um, um, and 
uh, which is, you know, you, you want to approach the sub 10 nanometer resolution, right? And, and mm. there you might need 20x expansion is right. 10 nanometers, right? Um, so this might be a silly question, but would it be useful at all, um, you know, once you do the expansion to then pass it through like an electron microscope or do you not gain anything at that point? Oh, um, yeah, I mean, it is interesting. Um, it, it could be useful. I mean, the thing about the electron microscopes is that they they work. There's a couple of modes they work in, right? I actually and, don't know much about electron microscopes. Um, I know the Compton wavelength of the electron is like, like a tenth of a nanometer ten, or something. Yeah, exactly. So, so your, you your get resolution, resolution is huge. But that's about all. Um, I don't know the actual, um, you know, working with them. Yeah, well, there's like, you can get, um, and I don't know, know that much about electron microscopy either, but basically you, you can either... Um, you can either get like absorption, uh, or like, like basically like things that where like electrons don't pass through, and that's like metals, or oh, okay. that's like how you generate contrast, mm, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's like hard to generate contrast to electrons. Like normal biological yeah. structures don't generate a ton of yeah. uh, contrast, right. and what people are doing is that they're like staining the samples with stuff like osmium, <laughs> um, and. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just, that's like this metal, and it, it, they found out this formulation that like stains the metal into like the membranes, like the lipid bilayers of, mm. of cells, and and that's how you generate a lot of these EM images for connectomics. Um, I think there's some idea about doing that. I mean, obviously, the electron microscopy images are already way past the diffraction limit, so um, that's why it might be not as interesting to do it. Yeah. The main then you might ask, why don't people just use EM all the time, right? right we already sure. have this instrument that, yeah. and 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 the reason is that actually, it's this exact thing about contrast in fluorescence microscopy. We can generate contrast on like, pro you know on specific proteins, right? We can mm-hmm. fuse a protein to a fluorescent protein, sure, or we can generate an antibody with a fluorophore. Um, we can connect the contrast that we're generating in the image to specific molecular features, mm-hmm. um, which is really powerful if you want to like label proteins in the synapse, or mm-hmm. if you want to look at like DNA or these sorts of RNA, these sorts of things. But in EM, you you have these like brute force tools for contrast, where uh, you are staining with some heavy metal or some hmm. other thing, and so you stain lots and lots of things. Um, but I think there is kind of a blossoming field in making new EM contrast agents, right? Like what if hmm. you could make contrast agents that um, labeled a very specific um, biological feature, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I didn't know anything about that. That's pretty interesting. I wanted to ask you, because I'm you know, obviously a grad student now and was reading about how, yeah, I mean, you were a grad student when you were kind of working on this. Mm-hmm. Um, what what was it like kind of on like the you know human side of it or personal side of it of being kind of on an exciting new discovery um <laughs> back in grad school yeah i mean um it was very exciting i mean i think i remember we were i worked on this with another graduate student paul tilburg mm-hmm. um um and we you know uh we didn't really know if it would work i mean it seemed like it like uh, kind of out there yeah uh, but we did this this first experiment and that's actually a good good thing to maybe learn about 
<laughs> biology is that in the first experiment we uh you know we were imaging this thing at like 3 a.m and like you know we were like oh oh wow i mean and we actually were, were imaging it as it progressively got bigger and we were like oh, oh wow. wow this thing is um you know this this cell is getting a lot bigger <laughs> right yeah. <laughs> this thing might work and 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 um i think um well i mean one lesson about that is that you might you might want to optimize for like doing a lot of doing experiments where you you see large effect sizes in the beginning right? <laughs> um because then yeah. you might know it's it's robust but but yeah it was super exciting yeah. um and um you know I, I i think being a graduate student is all sometimes a lot simpler too right you you know you have ideas and you yeah um are excited about them and then your whole job is to go and implement them you know you spend exactly. your time yeah. thinking about it and uh uh we you know you didn't think that much about like we just you know we had this idea and we tried it and it worked and yeah. we wanted to share it with the world i mean that awesome. that was it was like a very simple process i think a lot of times science yeah. is more complicated than that yeah sure and um you know, looking back, that's like one thing that I really appreciate about that process. Actually, mm -hmm. what what do you mean about the process of the your thesis work was kind of straightforward and, and and worked out, or just like the general process of science being kind of difficult? Oh, I mean, I think um, it's just that you know, there's a lot of aspects of science that um, are not as fun as doing that, right? Like, yeah. there's there's, there's yeah. um, writing grants or there's uh you know like as a pi you often talk about like the things you want to do right uh right and yeah. to other people and you try to convince them oh this is going to be a cool thing yeah when it but you know if you look back on that process it was like oh this is something i want to do and i did it and yeah. then it was a cool thing right so yeah uh so that's what i mean in this sense okay got yeah. it yeah no it's pretty um it was pretty cool to read about, honestly. Um, was there, it sounds like maybe not, but was there any um, particular kind of uh, sticking points on making the whole thing work? Oh, oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there was, I mean, we, when we first did the experiment, it, the cells were getting bigger, but then you see these like artifacts, like, um, like if you stain the microtubules, which are like the kind of, you can imagine them as like the skeleton of the cell. Okay. Yeah. Um, and they provide like the mechanical rigidity to a cell. Uh -huh. um, you can see that along the orientation, this is actually pretty interesting, like along the orientation of the microtubule, like imagine if you had like a bunch of like strings, right? Um, you When it was expanding, you actually saw these like stress fractures, right? Oh, wow. Where like the fractures were lined up across all of the <laughs> That's pretty the cool. And obviously that's like a really cool, like you might use that to study like something about the force. Yeah, right? that's what I was thinking. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, at that time we were like, oh, well, this is obviously not good if you want right. to make it like a, you know, turn right. this into a microscope. Sure. Uh, and so there was a lot, of, a little bit of engineering and thought uh, to figure out how you got, got around that part. And that's this idea of like making this cast where you transfer the molecules into the hydrogel and then you use like... Um, what we use is like a protonase that just like cuts up proteins so they're no longer cross-linked each other and that basically removes the mechanical force of of uh, internally to the, to the sample yeah got it yeah okay cool um yeah so that was your graduate work basically 
And then could you walk me through what you did, you know, from grad school to now? Right. Um, yeah. So I uh, graduated and then I, I went to the Broad as uh, an independent fellow. And that's kind of this thing that, that's been around and it's getting more popular in biology, um, which is um, oftentimes like biological training uh, is long you you do a PhD and then you do a postdoc for another you know the same length as yeah. a PhD <laughs> right um, and um, there was some idea basically of 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 trying to get people earlier in their careers to go into um, being able to do their own independent research which is a it's it's a I think a noble idea and so this was maybe even pioneered here at the Whitehead with the Whitehead. Uh, research fellows, oh, wow. like in, in, in the 80s or, or, <laughs> or something. Um, and um, it's, it's becoming more popular in recent years. And, and so the Broad had started its first fellows program. Uh, and I went as a, as a fellow. And, and all that means is that, you know, you, you get some funding and yeah. some uh, space to start a small lab. And so, okay. so I did that. And and the problem that I I was really interested in when I started my lab is that I had been developing these microscopy technologies yeah. um, for a while in, in, in Ed's lab, and and it was clear that you know microscopy is really powerful, but like the, there was this limit in how many. So we we talked about the diffraction limit, which is like the limit in how many uh, the resolution. Mm-hmm. But then there's also kind of this there there's this limit in how many things you can look at on the microscope at a time. Because basically we use uh, fluorescence. Mm-hmm. And if you just think about, um, you know, how many colors you can separate out from, mm-hmm. like, the okay. optical spectra. Yeah. Um, that's, like, the limit in the number of things you can label. Right. And So, like, six or something six like or that. Six or something. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, but there's, like, 20,000 genes, right, in the <laughs> yeah. genome. And, and, and yes. or, yeah. I mean, I mean, maybe more. I mean, there's lots of like variants of genes. Anyways, there's at least twenty thousand things you want to look at, yeah, yeah. and so, um, so that was the challenge. I mean, and on the other side of this equation, what the Broad has been really good at, uh, before you know, in in the last decade, is is taking samples up and like grinding them up. Sorry, taking samples and grinding them up and like looking at the relative abundances, oh, like the compositions of yeah. these twenty thousand things, right? Okay. Without any spatial information, but you you can you can go and and that's what the process of sequencing kind of is. Is so you can go and like um, at least for RNA sequencing, you can go look at the relative abundances of these twenty thousand RNAs. Hmm. Um, and so, like my my lab was really focused on marrying these two worlds, okay. right? Yeah. Like, how do we look at um, you know the diverse array of biomolecules that right. you can that you can get by sequencing, like, you know, putting it on to a next generation sequencer, but doing that inside of, of, of tissues. And so, um, so we, we did a lot of technology development in that, okay. in that front. Rolling it back a little bit. Um, when you said like, you know, you want to measure the relative abundance of, you know, various you know parts of, uh, of RNA, or, you know, or parts of genes. Um, um, 
could you tell me, so what I think of back to like my chemi days is if I want to know the relative abundance of something in a sample, I would go to like a gas spectrometer or something mm -hmm. and I could see like elements. So could you tell me just cause I'm not a super bio guy, so I don't know, how is that yeah. kind of traditionally done of, rel of measuring relative abundances? Yeah. Um, it's, it's, that's a great, uh, thing. So, so, you know, you can, um, spectrometry is still used, right? Like if you, if you. Uh, in particular, like mass spectrometry mm. is used all the time okay. to measure the relative abundances of proteins. Okay. Um, but what has really taken off, um, I would say, in the last 20 years is measuring nucleic acids like DNA and RNA. Okay. And... And, and it's kind of interesting. It's because you can you have enzymes which let you copy dna and rna that's really what's what's like at the crux of it all okay because if you have um you know a protein you have like one copy of that protein mm -hmm. and you have to be able to go and make all your measurements on that one copy of that protein. Right. but if you have a piece of rna or a piece of dna mm -hmm. you can copy it right yeah. and right. you can measure you can take one copy and make it into like you know a million copies yeah and then you can easily measure that million copies right and so um so that was the first step so what happens then is that uh you you basically can use the sequence information right like um each gene can be represented as a unique string of a's c's g's and t's right and so um you just need to go and count the number of strings of A's, C's, G's, and T's okay. if you want to figure out the relative abundance of, of a given gene. Right. Um, okay. So, sorry. So, maybe taking a step back. In each cell, there's one genome, right? Yep. And that genome has like 3 billion letters and this, you know, um, and has like two copies on average of every single gene. Yeah. And... Um, you don't really need to know the relative abundances there. What we first did was we went and sequenced or like determined the relative order of A, C's and G's and T's in, in the genomes. Right. Mm -hmm. um, that was like the human genome project. Yeah. Uh, and we did that in like around 2000 mm -hmm. and it cost about a billion dollars to, you know, I mean, that, that's actually not that bad. Right. Like, um, I don't know how many real dollars like today would be, right? Yeah. Uh, well, it's a lot less expensive than our James, particle physics. Yeah, or like James Webb Space Telescope. Yeah. Probably, uh, yeah. I mean, that telescope's amazing, but like, yeah, so yeah. It's, it, it's, it's, it's not billions. that. Yeah. yeah, but that's one human genome, right? There's a lot right. of humans out there. And, yeah. and one of the next things that people did was like, how do we look at the variation, right? Like mm. the variation in my genome versus your genome. Right. Um, and... How do we get a sense of that variation across populations? Yeah. And, um, and what we did, there was an intermediate technology um, that just looked at the point. Like, it was a way to, is a comparator, basically. Hmm. You could just compare. If we know, like, there's about a hundred, you know, 0.1% of the genome is, like, maybe different. Yeah. Um, and, like, some fraction of that is relatively important. We can just, like, take all of those points and compare you and me and that was like a less less 
difficult problem than going sure. and sequencing all of the genome between yeah. your genome and my genome because we already know that like 99.9 percent .9 is the same so right. why, why would we like go and do this again yeah um and so that's how we collected a lot of this information about like human genetic variation um but then um there was this kind of revolution in sequencing technology or the ability to reconstruct ACs and g's mm -hmm. and t's from samples um that was really led by this company that's now like, um, you know, uh, dominant in the field called Illumina. Hmm. And mm -hmm. basically uh, what they did was they, they made a very high throughput fluorescence microscope and they gave each base like a different color. Okay. And they engineered this enzyme um, that, um, and, and a set of bases that would like add one base. It's like a, combination of enzymes in chemistry huh. where you would add one base and then you can image it okay and then you can add another chemical to to like cleave the dye and then add the next base yeah and so you can just take these videos wow um and yeah. then you would lay out like you know millions of of these molecules on like a flow cell yep. and then the microscope just goes in and takes takes millions of huh. these videos and so that that like basic idea drove the price of sequencing from you know a billion dollars for the human genome to what, maybe it costs 500 dollars to sequence a human genome right now right um wow. in like you know 15 years yeah and so uh there was this like super exponential decrease in the cost of sequencing mm -hmm. and, and then that made people realize that it was then possible to take um samples and so every cell has one genome and that genome was converted into um messages to make proteins they're called rna like mrnas messenger mm -hmm. rnas and so like those are the so if you think about you can think of those as the instructions i feel that's like the analogy people like yeah. the instructions yeah, for the sure. cell right uh -huh. and so if you think of the cell as like a state machine that's like another like way <laughs> like people like this yeah. another like engineering now you can tell it's like a state machine. You can like probe the state of the state machine mm -hmm. by looking at the instructions that's hmm. currently in it, and um, and so uh, and people realized that one way to do that was to go and count the different like instructions or like figure out the relative compositions of the instructions. Yeah. Um, hmm. And like, what instructions is the cell executing, and like, in what proportions are the instructions being executed? Right. Okay. And so that's just, that's called that's basically RNA sequencing. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that you can use the same chemistry that's revolutionized DNA sequencing, but now you sequence RNA. And now instead of uh, instead of trying to just determine the sequence, you can actually count the relative proportions, right? I saw this RNA like you right. know a hundred times, and I saw this RNA one time. Yeah. Um, right. And so so that's really. Uh, been able for us to like look and dissect out like states of cells right it gives us um a way to connect um it gives us a way to connect basically like genes to like the functions uh, of cells or like what cells are doing so so could you like for example um like turn off a gene and then you'd be able to notice that there's a decrease in some mRNA yeah definitely. okay oh, that's um so like uh another um way to 
you know, one thing that I, I think is important, like if you think about like what uh, it would be important to go if you want to learn about biology, um, coming from an engineering background is that you might want to know about like characteristic numbers, right? Yeah. And right. like, you know, you want to know the order of things. Exactly. And so it's important to remember there's 20,000 genes. <laughs> it's important to remember maybe that there's, and there's this website, BioNumbers. That's a great, there's hmm. this, it's like a compilation, you know, people publish a bunch of papers okay. yeah. and they measure different constants, these for numbers. And it's a compilation of oh, cool. these, these like characteristic yeah. numbers. Huh. Um, and so one thing that you might want to then remember is that like an mRNA has a half-life of like a couple of hours in a cell. Um, and so um, it is in fact like a transient state yeah. you're measuring. So um, and maybe here's a good way to illustrate that analogy, right? Like um, there's two things you can think about. You can think about different, like a skin cell, right? Versus a neuron. Yeah. They are in different, they have the same genome, mm -hmm. right? But they're executing different functions and they're clearly in different states, yeah. right? Absolutely. Uh, and um, so then you could go and look at their collection of RNAs. We call that the transcriptome because mm -hmm. each RNA is like a trans. It's a transcript and the yeah. collection of all RNAs is the transcriptome. Right. And so you can look at the transcriptome um, and then you can say, see basically the steady state difference in the transcriptome between neurons mm -hmm. and skin cells. Mm -hmm. And you'll find that, well, there are some genes that are the same, right? Like there's a bunch of genes that the cell just needs to be around to like live. Yeah. Right. Right. And then, but then you'll find a bunch of genes that are like neuron specific or skin cells. Specific. You'll find like neurotransmitters. You'll find like genes that encode the function of the neuron. Right. Right. Yeah. And, um, and you, we can actually think about those, like you can look at the correlation, um, like structure of, of genes, mm -hmm. uh, that make up a neuron versus a skin cell. And you can actually assign like modules of genes, right? Like that form mm. circuits that yeah. make, make a neuron. And then you, you know, a, one really interesting question that, you know, challenge in engineering it's like oh well maybe i want to make a skin cell into a neuron because right? right. they have the same genome so yeah. i could imagine like and you can do maybe converting the skin cell into the neuron and then you might say like oh what parts of its transcriptome do i need to perturb like move right like huh. if i could just move the state machine from this state to that other state right does the the skin cell turn into a neuron yeah. um well i guess it's like a little bit more complicated than that because uh the state is like memorized by something happening in the genome and we can talk mm. about that separately but the mm -hmm. genome has some memory right it's not like um right yeah so i i uh and so like um there's this whole field about thinking about like how do you reprogram the memory in the genome so that you can convert like one cell type into another so they end up in the same same state. Is this the idea basically kind of with like Yamanaka factors? Yeah, of... like Yamanaka factors. Uh -huh. um, so what do Yamanaka factors do? They, it's actually interesting. So like they can, you can take a skin cell and you can add these transcription factors mm -hmm. and it converts the state of the cell into something that looks like a stem cell. Right. Uh, it's some undifferentiated cell. And, and, um, and 
it, what it's doing is it's kind of like erasing the memory the cell has of where it's supposed to be. Right. right. Yeah. Um, I guess like an analogy would be like, um, cell. it's like ROM, you know, read only memory. Yeah. The cells are like, you know, you like program the mm. cell, the cells are like stuck in the state, but you can like flash ROMs. You're going to erase the yeah. memory. Um, Cells are not like RAM. You can't just like pro, like move right. the cell from state one to state two. Yeah, they're a little bit like ROM. Like you can have a skin cell and it has like the ROM for the skin cell, mm -hmm. and the Yamanaka factor is like flashing the ROM <laughs> to convert it into this unwritten state. And then you, now you yeah. can like flash it with the neuron, mm -hmm. uh, and that's what people people are doing. Although there's a very interesting idea of like can you trans differentiation, which is like can you take skin cells which are like stuck in this, you know, right. in our analogy, they're like this yeah. read-only memory for skin cells. Can yeah. you just like change that memory somehow directly into the, you know, the oh, state? without for, going back. Without going backwards. Interesting. Um, but going backwards is is the way that we have learned how to do it the yeah. most traditionally. Is there a problem with going back? Like, it seems more difficult to go straight. It is much more difficult to yeah. go straight. And it's unclear if there's ways to traverse that landscape. You can imagine... Uh -huh. Um, yeah, it's unclear if you can move between those two things, but, um, there's a lot of, it, I think, benefits to going straight in the sense that, like, you might be able to do it in situ, like, if you, you yeah. know, like, had some injury, I mean, if you are interested yeah. in that, right, like, if you had some sure. injury to your spinal cord, mm -hmm. like, could you go, like, convert the nearby cells, or, like, there's a lot of places where you can't deliver cells, right? Yeah. So you might want to do it like in C2, like trans differentiation from hmm. one cell type to another. Okay. Um, be, just because it's hard to like take cells out of your body and then convert them and then put them back into the places that you might want yeah. to put them. I right. Think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So. Um, so this is something that I don't know, maybe will illustrate my um, lack of understanding currently, but you have, um, you know, two cells, they have the same genome. But one's a skin cell and one is a one is a neuron, um, and there's this idea that you you know an analogy of you know well there's kind of the ROM basically, where in the cell is the ROM, and right? Then, you know like I, you have the same genome, so yeah, exactly. What's where is the ROM be? Where is like the ROM existing basically? Um, it turns out, and this is just some of like a really interesting question, like the the ROM is stored in it's like this persistent state that's stored in like the proteins and marks so there are these modifications of the genome like um chemical modifications of the dna mm. that help store the state okay uh when you know the classical one is this thing called dna methylation okay and that's like where a methyl group gets added to one of the cytosines. And and mm -hmm. it's just like a way to like mark the genome. Mm -hmm. um, and um, those marks get persisted when cells divide hmm. and by some very complicated maintenance machinery. Um, so that's one aspect. But then there's also like, it turns out that you have this three meter long so, like, if you stretch out the 3 billion bases of the genome, I think it's, like, maybe it's not 3 meter, maybe a meter long um, linear sequence. And you pack it into this 10 micrometer sphere. Wow. And so. 
but it's not randomly packed. It turns out that the basically the packing, the 3D packing of that genome hmm. determines what genes are maybe turned on and what genes are turned off. So hmm. there's there's like a structural element. There's like proteins which maintain like um, the state, and then there's probably positive feedback loops. Sure. That yeah. maintain the state. Yeah. Um, and so it's like some combination of all of those those things, mm -hmm. and that's why uh, it is complicated <laughs> to figure out how to do this. Yeah. This trans differentiation or or any sort of these things is that um, we don't really understand. That's like like the most the question you asked is not naive at all. It's like actually like a pretty fundamental question is uh -huh. like, you know, the difference between these two cell types, like where is that information stored? Right. Got it. And we have a broad strokes understanding of like what types of substrates it might be stored. But mm -hmm. if you were to ask me, where is the information stored between a skin cell and a neuron? I would be hard pressed to give you okay. like, yeah. you know, you know, these are the parts in the skin cell yeah. like genome which are methylated and these are the proteins that right. need to be around um it's this like and so um yeah i mean it's just it's it's a kind of a fundamental question okay yeah so with this idea of kind of the 3d structure being um you know it's, it's not trivial it's important to what actually becomes yes. a cell is that part of the reason why stuff like expansion microscopy and like understanding the 3d structure of yeah you know, for sure is i mean part of my research our research is trying to understand the 3d structure of the genome mm -hmm. and how that relates to basically gene like you know genome function and yeah. what genes are on and right. what genes are off yeah um and you know i i think it's i mean Here's like the fundamental thing that's also crazy about it, right? Like, we we just posited that the structure of the genome was important. Well, like every cell time the cell divides, mm -hmm. you like randomly you you have to like condense all your chromosomes. Yeah. You have to copy your chromosomes, condense them, yeah, and then reassort them into two new cells, right? And if I just said that the structure of the genome was important for maintaining what cell type I am. Well, that means that the skin cell, right? Like every time a skin cell divides, yeah. it has to maintain those physical structures, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, with high fidelity. Right. In this, like you know, you know, packing three billion bases into into this really small volume. Right? Yeah. So, uh -huh. um, I mean, that's just kind of a very amazing act. <laughs> right. Yeah. Absolutely. So. Um, does your group or is there interest kind of more broadly even in the, in like measuring this across time or is it always kind of a static, um, yeah, know, static definitely. Um, we're very interested in, in measuring, measuring things across time. And, and, um, I want to point out, I mean, Anders Hansen, who's like right, right there, I think actually <laughs> he's a MIT PE professor okay. uh, that we collaborate with. I mean, one thing that we're very interested in, his group is very interested in is like, taking videos of like okay. individual like just lab label two points in the genome sure and sure. just taking like dynamic videos of how they're interacting and moving around um and 
we are very interested in temporal measurements, but it is challenging because uh, almost all of the measurements that we have in biology involve like killing the thing (laughs) (laughs) that we want to measure, Uh Um, at least molecular measurements. I mean, obviously there's like non-invasive measurements, um, but but molecular, if you want to ascertain the molecules like what protein or a gene or at what mRNA, they're almost all destructive. Yeah. Although, um, you know, we're very interested in, in ideas for like mole- this idea of molecular recording. I mean, I, mm. I just told you that like we're really good at reading the sequence of DNA or RNA. Yeah. Um, so if we can convert, we, we're interested in ways of converting dynamic dynamics Mm-hmm. into something like sequence hmm. so like um i mean here's like one idea i mean this is not my i mean this is an idea i worked on in undergrad and something that george was really not undergrad in grad school and something george was really excited about back mm-hmm. in the day too uh george church yeah it's like you know one one area of dynamics you might care about is like the activity of neurons sure. right the firing of of neurons yeah. and and um you know, imagine if you convert the when a neuron spikes into like one base in a piece of DNA, like an A. Oh, okay. And then when a neuron is like not spiking into like another base, then um, that's a temporal record in sequence. And now you can like then sequence that and reconstruct like oh. the history of um, that neuron's firing. And the thing is, is that sequencing is very scalable. Hmm. Um, right, right, but there's other ways of doing it. You don't have to encode that inf- dynamic information in in DNA. Uh, you could encode it into other substrates. I mean, I think Adam Cohen um, and Ed both had a paper that was very interesting in BioArchive, like um, a couple months ago, where it was like encoding it in like a protein tube. Like huh. it was basically like a ruler. It's like a it's a thing that continuously polymerizes at a set rate. Okay. And then like if things were happening, if the cell was in one state, it would be red. It, it basically makes like a binary barcode okay. oh, in cool. your cell that's like a physical structure. Yeah. And then you can you can read it out later by a microscopy. Okay. Right? Yeah. And so it's like trying to figure out ways of converting dynamics into permanent records. I see. Um, yeah. Yeah. So is the idea that you mentioned with George, is that the thing that's called ticker tape? Yeah, that's okay. a ticker tape. Yeah. That's like a molecular ticker tape. Hmm. And then um, there's been a lot of other ideas for, um, and for, so that's a much harder pro- idea. I yeah. mean, there's been, the best implementations of molecular recording have been uh, for lineage tracing, which is like understanding which cells are born from which other cells. Okay. Um, because, you know, you have, you know, like this is another amazing part of like biology is that like, you know, every cell in your body came from like one, one yeah, cell. Right? right. So, um, and, um, for organisms like C. elegans, you can like, just like look on a microscope and see like which cells became which cells. Mm, and wow. like somebody did that in like the eighties. Okay. Like, they made like, an yeah. entire map of like, <laughs> because there's only like a couple thousand cells or something. Yeah. Um, but you can't do that for like mammals or, right yeah um and so um 
you know, there's been some cool ideas where you go and you you make like random scars. If you just introduce like random mutations in the genome at a set rate, mm -hmm. you can actually like reconstruct the lineage by looking at like basically like it's like 23andMe for cells, right? Yeah. Because yeah. like you can connect the relatedness of two individuals by their like right. shared mutation. So it's it's kind of like the thing with calico cats, but yeah you know many dimensions not just your yeah exactly the kind of thing thing with calico huh. cats huh. yeah so you if you just introduce a random mutational process yeah um then you can look at like the shared mutations okay. right yeah because like um the daughter cells will have that shared mutation plus right. additional mutations right and so um you know that's the fundamental concept and there's been like implementations of that concept yeah. with um different enzymes crispr cas9 yeah, is being sure. like one prominent one right um so that's one version of molecular recording and th that's at a really long time scales right like in yeah. the sense that like there you need to make one record every time the cell divides yeah um right at minimum maybe um you but there's like probably like you know we worked on uh a project where we try to determine the age like have used the same idea where we accumulate mutations mm -hmm. on RNA mm -hmm. and now we can determine the age oh, of a given RNA yeah. just by how many mutations it has. It's like a clock. Right. right. right? Yeah, um, absolutely. And I mean, that could be cool in the sense that, I mean, it is cool in the sense that you can use that to reconstruct when the RNA was made. Mm -hmm. And a lot of genes are made in response to stimuli. Okay. And so uh -huh. you can then try to reconstruct the past Mm -hmm. dynamics of stimulus huh. right through that so so i think there there's some ideas about doing molecular recording yep. um this broad field of, of getting dynamics the other thing would be to way to get at dynamics um well I mean, I mean another aspect of that molecular recording before i finish is like interactions between cells right mm. you might want to know when two cells have like seen each other yeah. if you have like dynamic migratory cells or cells that are moving around yeah um and um we're interested in this problem but i think other people you know we people have invented like tools wherein like you can transfer a label from one cell type to another cell huh. when it sees it okay um so that's another way of looking at like the history right like you here you're like yeah. marking interactions right and at the end you see which cells were have interacted yeah right? um so those those are like ideas of like converting something that happened in the past into a permanent record mm-hmm and then there is probably a su another set of, of things for dynamics where um, you can try to infer causality from perturbations. So, like, if you... I mean, that's actually how we learned the most, most of what we know about a lot of biology is that, yeah. you know, you... Um, instead of looking at real dynamics, you're looking at, like, oh, I'm going to, like, get rid of this thing and then I'll know if this thing is responsible, causal or right. like necessary and sufficient for this other thing. Right. Um, right. And um, that's how we map gene, like, you know, functional genomics where we like map genes, mm -hmm. like what their functions are by mm -hmm. like just knocking them out. <laughs> right. right? Um, and yeah, I, I, I think perturbations are, are going to be quite, ex are, are quite exciting for, for inferring causality. Yeah. It's another mm -hmm. area where, you can get at dynamics. Okay. Um, so if I can ask you about some specific things um, from your lab. For sure, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I guess that we've kind of covered some 
of the spatial genomics and temporal genomics stuff. Um, one thing I saw on kind of your homepage that I, I wasn't able to really understand in the time that I had, which is this thing called slides, slide seek, oh, okay, slide sequencing, yeah. I guess. Yeah, yeah. Could you tell me about that? Yeah. So, um, we talked a little bit earlier in our conversation about how, you know, when I started my lab at the Broad, I wanted a mirror, yeah. like I wanted to, um, bring together this world of like sequencing the compositions of, of cells, uh-huh. right? What messages they are expressing. Yeah. Um, and the world of microscopy where you can like look at where the cells are mm-hmm. or who their neighbors are mm-hmm. but you can only look at like six of those molecules at a time <laughs> yeah. and so slide seek i mean the concept is really simple it is imagine if i like made a camera right like a camera is like all composed of an array of pixels yep. and instead of taking pictures in photons the camera is just like capturing these messages. Like hmm. each each pixel is capturing what messages, um, you know, it saw mm-hmm. the these mRNA molecules. Mm-hmm. And so how we make this 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 camera then is that we um, we take um, we take beads. Like each pixel is a bead, like a like a micro bead. Okay, it's it's about ten microns mm-hmm. and. What is it? What is it? It's made out of polystyrene. Oh wow! Okay. Okay. It's like it's like okay. It's like (laughs) a polystyrene microbead. A physical little microbead. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And on it, there's a bunch of uh, barcoded DNA. And what I mean by barcoded is what I mean that like each bead has a unique clonal sequence. Each bead has a unique sequence of A's, C's, and G's and T's on it. Okay. Oh, I see. Okay. And. And what we do is we um, we determine the x y we determine the relationship between the we put these beads out onto like a surface, mm-hmm. and so it, it basically forms like a an array of pixels. Right. Uh-huh. And on each pixel, we now determine like the x y location and also like the unique sequence that's associated with that x y mm-hmm. location. Um, quick question: So you have a bead. Uh, is there one barcoded DNA per bead, or is there? There's many? there's about a ten million okay. DNAs per bead, and do they all have the same barcode? They all per have bead? the same okay. barcode. Okay, mm-hmm. so it's basically just an identifier oh. that says what where what bead it is. Yes, okay. an identifier what bead it is, mm-hmm. and then we we associate the identifier which which spatial location it's in. Yep. Mm-hmm. So now we have this like effectively this pixel array, right? Because yeah. we know this pixel array that's like. Where there's a correspondence between position and barcode. Yep. Um, and then what we do is we take like a piece of tissue, like let's just say, you know, there's um you can take like um yeah tissue from pathology or animals or whatever. Yeah. And what you do is you can actually freeze it. Okay. You you freeze the tissue into uh-huh. like a block um, of basically ice, and then in this like. Fancy like deli slicer setup thing. <laughs> okay, it's a glorified deli slicer. You can cut a very thin section. How how big are we talking of a little? Like a little, like a like is this a microscopic piece of cell or is it no no like, like so we will take like a mouse brain. Okay, right, a mouse brain oh, is wow. about a centimeter cubed. Okay, okay, yeah, and you freeze it. Wow, and oh, then wow. you okay. mount it onto like this deli slicer, wow. and then it sections like, um, it just makes like a, a section of it. Okay. And you can make a 10 micron section. Oh, okay. Which is about like a layer of cells. Okay. But it's still a centimeter by a centimeter. Okay. 
right? Wow. So it's like literally an a, like a a two D plane. Yeah, absolutely. Of, of, of like the organ. Right. And you lay that two D plane on your pixel array. Okay. And now we take the molecule, the transcripts, the messages, mm-hmm. the messages from the that two D plane is captured onto the beats. Mm-hmm. And so. Uh, it, Sorry to interrupt you again, yeah. but the bead, how big is the bead? One 10 mic- microns. 10 microns, and you have a one centimeter cube, so you have like 10,000 squared pixels. Is that right? Um, yeah, it would be uh, a one centimeter. Yeah, if 10,000 squared pixels. Okay. We are doing, usually we do three, three millimeter. We usually have three thousand squared about a hundred thousand pixels in okay the, oh yeah. okay that's pretty that's pretty manageable it sounds yeah like. we have like a 100 kilopixel <laughs> a 0.1 megapixel oh <laughs> uh, no that's a yeah a 0.1 megapixel yeah <laughs> point one. okay um okay. but but the messages from the um tissue get transferred onto the these pixels mm-hmm. and they get barcoded they get associated with the unique sequence of A's, C's, and G's, and Got G's it. Uh-huh. at each pixel. Okay. And then, um, now we sequence. We put that onto like one of these high throughput sequencers, mm-hmm. and now we can sequence the barcode and what the message was. Oh, I see. So okay. now you're just wow. like, it's like effectively just as I said. It's like the analogy of the camera is like very apt. Now yeah. instead of taking pictures of photons, you're taking pictures of these mal- like messages. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's cool because now, like, it's like a microscope with 10 micron resolution. Yeah. Um, but now you reconstruct the, like, all of the messages right. from each cell. And as I just said, like, the messages tell you something about the state yeah, of absolutely. the cell. And so now you can see, and, and at the first level, zeroth level, you can, like, look at where the genes are being expressed. And then at the next level, you can look... Group the genes based on like what you know about cell types, right? You'll see a bunch of neuronal markers Mm -hmm. that are co-expressed on that are all captured by this bead. You Mm -hmm. have like a good likelihood that there was a neuron here, Mm -hmm. and and actually we have much higher resolution than that because you get to look at the whole transcriptome. So we Hmm. we can we can basically classify where cells are on on these beads. Okay, and um. basic kind of technical question that i mm-hmm. just for clarification so um you have for example in in the mouse brain you have uh is it rna or mrna that mm, or we're is, capturing, it's not important it's not that important. okay it, we're capturing mrna so yeah. you have mrna and you have so you have mrna and you have little beads with um marker dna on mm-hmm. it um what exactly happens does the rna go onto the beads or does the dna go onto the the rna goes onto the beads okay in a diffusional type it's okay. just like a diffusion thing okay um and then um there is this process where we associate the dna with the rna in the sense that we we yeah. use this enzyme called reverse transcriptase okay and what it does is it takes the um it uses this barcoded piece of dna as a primer yeah. and it synthesizes these complementary dna of that rna and so okay. now you have this one molecule huh Okay. That has like the RNA sequence on it, and also the and that's how you get yeah, the exactly. Okay, wow. Okay, that's that sounds pretty awesome. Um, and then you take this. Um, 
do you do you is there kind of just a thing where you like kind of like wash out the RNA uh, from the styrofoam beads? Or? So yeah, so after that you yeah you basically can you don't have to keep the pixels intact anymore. Yeah. You can just collect right, them because you then, have the XY data. Yeah, and I then yeah. I said that you um you basically use um this PCR, which is this way to amplify. You amplify yeah. all of the molecules sure. that you captured basically yeah and then you put that onto this other machine okay that's pretty awesome yeah. yeah um so kind of from a higher up perspective um what uh you know, kind of what are your like kind of more broad goals over the next i don't know 10 yeah. years 20 years like what would be successful next 10 years for you yeah i mean um what we've done so far in the lab, it's like come up with ways to measure the organization, yeah. map the organization of biomolecules, uh-huh. whether that's like the loc- where genes are being expressed in tissues or where cells are. Yeah. Um, or at another resolution, it's like what is the organization of the genome? Mm-hmm. Like um, I'm really big into like – so one of the things about – biology that's hard compared to engineering is that there are not good abstraction layers Hmm. what do you mean by that in the sense that like if i'm like an engineer and i'm building um a circuit or like let's say i'm a you know it if i'm building like a circuit like i don't have to worry about how transistors work yeah okay right (laughs) i can take like an op amp and you know whatever um and i can uh, build my circuit with an abstraction like i don't have to worry about like enm when i'm building circuits um but the abstraction layers are like really fuzzy in biology oh my god like if we want if i want to build a tissue i can't use cells as abstractions because cells have weird interactions with each other or like we just don't know the rules yeah right and so um one thing that would i i i think would be really exciting is like coming up with the rules like learning the rules of tissue organization like Uh like what are the interactions that are important and what are the molecules that are important to like form function Mm -hmm. in like any tissue like the brain or the kidney and 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 being able to then like manipulate these rules in like an abstracted context, like take those rules and recapitulate them in models where you put different cells together, like tissue engineering, like where you try to build tissues. Yeah, right. right. Like, you know, um, I think success would be like if we can take the rule, like if we can understand the rules of tissue organization such that we can actually go and build like new tissues with new functions. Right. right? Yeah. Um, and so that's one aspect. And the other aspect is like, um, same, similarly for like genome organization, right? Like if we could understand gene regulation in a way yeah. um, where like we understood the rules of how structure affects function and that, that we can reorganize the structure right. to change how gene expression or like if we understood like that fundamental question yeah. of like what are what is like the memory states, right? Right. And like, then we might be able to then reprogram the memory states. Yeah. And so, um, a lot of what I think about is like, how do we generate like abstractions for biology? (laughs) Or maybe we can't generate them, but we could at least come up with like 
um, frameworks for thinking about how to engineer engineer biology, right? Right. And 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 we're doing that through um, building computational models. Uh-huh. Um, we're doing that by developing new ways of making measurements, and then we're doing that by making perturbations right. in those like models. Like we'll make predictions about what perturbations to make. And then we'll make those perturbations, and then that will tell us how correct our models are. Right? Yeah. So. So I had a question for you about kind of the state of the field as a whole, or maybe not even, maybe it's larger than the field, but there's people who are, um, you know, working on various anti-aging stuff, mm-hmm. um, you know, various gene therapies. Yeah. And it's not, you know, as an outsider, it's not clear to me that we know enough to be successful yet. And it seems like your work is really useful to get us to actually understand what's going on a little bit better. So I guess the question I'm asking is, do you think that more work should be focused towards kind of developing tools for understanding what's going on like you're doing or do we need both? Like what's, I think we need both. Actually, I think we need both tools to understand what's going on. And then a lot of characterization of what's going on Mm. to like, um, I think there are efforts to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, I heard about a, a cool, some cool efforts to do that, where it's not focused on perturbations to like, um, it's to investigate published perturbations and figure out what exactly is going on, right? Yeah. Because, um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of excitement about, um, for example, like delivery of Yamanaka factors, but I, <laughs> yeah. I think it's it's it's, right. it's it's a there's a lot of characterization that needs to be done about mm. like what 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 are you we actually perturbing in yeah. these systems, and um, I think there's so much to be learned, also in just understanding like what is normal aging, yeah, <laughs> right, right, and what is pathology, yeah. And what is like a healthy tissue mm-hmm. and versus what is like an aged tissue, whatever that means, right? Yeah. And um, so that's, I mean, I've, I've been, I ha- I'm not like a huge aging person, but like, mm-hmm. you know, that's how, like one thing that I've been thinking about is yeah. that like we need to come up with like a language to describe right. what are the phenomenon, right? And there's lots of ways to describe what the phenomenon are, but it'd be great if that language could be used to make predictions yeah. that we can then and go and test, right? right. Um, so that's that's one thing um, I think the field needs a lot more of. Um, just mm. like, un, like that, I guess that's what I'm saying. Like that's why we're doing these things. It's right. like how do you characterize the the rules and the frameworks that these things are operating under? Yeah. Um, but, but I do think it's exciting that so many people are into it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you get the sense that, like, I mean, a lot of biological discovery is serendipitous, right? right? Yeah. And so yeah, um, you get the sense that, like, there might, you know, I think you get the sense that you have to be in the right place, right? Yeah. Um, and and then you you're serendipitously find this thing, and, and yeah. we might already be we might be at the right place. There's some excitement that we're at the right place, and so right. more efforts to try to increase the like interaction frequency yeah. of the serendipitous <laughs> events will be good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Like, I guess what I mean is that 
Um, oftentimes things are obvious from hindsight, but you haven't been in the right framework of mind to think about it. Like expansion microscopy, yeah. like um, it would have been difficult to develop that a long time ago, even though it was totally possible because you know people weren't thinking about problems at that length scale yeah. and um you needed the development of certain like molecular tools mm-hmm. to make it interesting to like really good antibodies really good fluorophores and 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 then um yeah i, I think it it requires kind of being at the right state in the field yeah. for you to think about you know the impact of the problem right and, yeah. and so that that also happens in other you know, I'm sure that happens everywhere, and so there might be some some sense that we might be at the right place. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm not sure if it'll be useful, but like I don't know. I I find like my entire time in college, like the most useful conversations I've had, like the most useful thing I've had from college, isn't stuff that I could have learned from textbook. Right. It's talking to people. Yeah. So um, along the ideas of kind of serendipity and kind of like being at the right place at the right time with the right ideas. Um, is there anything that you do kind of outside of work that kind of, you know, puts you in the right mindset or kind of helps you? Kind yeah. Of? I mean, um, yeah, that's a great question. I, I love reading science fiction. Oh, really? actually. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> or I used to, I, I mean, I still, I love reading science fiction and yeah. I, I used to have a lot more time for it. Yeah. it. <laughs> uh, and now I, I have not, um, recently, but, sure. um, you know, I was a big fan of the classic, you know, science fiction, you uh-huh. know, Asimov, sure. you know, Dune, oh, yeah. these sorts of things. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I would say for a while, I mean, I, I, I really enjoyed reading Neil Stevenson. I think he, he's mm-hmm. got some very prophetic things that mm-hmm. happen in his books, mm-hmm. um, like Cryptonomicon mm-hmm. you know, yeah. prophesized <laughs> yeah. uh, the cryptocurrency (laughs) revolution maybe uh but you know i I, um why do i like i why do i think it's interesting i think it's just interesting to um a lot of those books like also explore like society in interesting ways i think beyond just um it's like a way of doing experiments about society right um which i which i think is is quite cool um yeah i mean i i think being at the right place at the right time. I think one one thing I I do like doing is I love talking to other people in yeah. other fields about their science. Yeah. Um, like astronomy. Like sure. I'm super into talking to you know I don't know that much about astronomy, but I like love talking to astronomists about what they're doing. Yeah. In, um, like these deep sky surveys. Or yeah, like absolutely. Exoplanet, like right. Um, and. I can't tell you of a time when like, oh, there was an idea that I talked to someone else about that became really relevant in my research. But I I, I, I think it's helpful to just, um, you know, there's a lot of that awe and wonder about learning like about new, like things that are way outside of your field that, um, that helps just like you be more creative, I think. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. Huh. Um, so you kind of mentioned, you know, talking to people far outside of your field. One thing I wanted to ask about kind of talking to people in the field was um, I actually happened to find online that a while ago you signed up for something called Open Wetware, 
which oh yeah that for was sure. from what I was able to see it seems like kind of a defunct web page now yeah. but um it seemed like some organization like the early 2010s maybe to try and kind of pull together people it, it was um I think media here at MIT oh yeah it was for synthetic biology yeah and um yeah it, it, here's what it is is that like it's actually for this exact same reason of like there's yeah. There's like not really good abstractions for engineering right. biology. Exactly. And so yeah. um, it was a way for people to characterize and build parts mm-hmm. that can maybe be put together. Um, and it was part of this program called iGEM, which is still around. I mean, it's oh, really, okay. really popular these days. It's like this international genetically engineered machine. Oh, wow. Thing. I mean, I did that as an undergrad, and that's why there was this OpenWare page. Yep. I mean, I think that that is a, was, is and continues to be like a great great thing because it inspires a lot of folks to come in to biology yeah. from other uh areas yeah I, yeah i mean speaking about that i think it's it's interesting to think about how organizations are set up yeah right sure uh, i'm sure you guys might have th- thought about like yeah how do you set up organizations um to change to to like really generate like um impact in science yeah right whether that's like motivation like how do you um generate like the right incentive structures in terms of grants and like how like how funding is distributed i think that's a really interesting aspect Mm -hmm. there's also just like how do you build like organizations to disseminate research right Right. and perhaps like interest populations of people that you couldn't access before right yeah absolutely um yeah, I, I, I think it's 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 very interesting to think about those those questions. Yeah. Um, and I think there's the cool thing is that I think there's a lot of um, innovation happening in that space right now. Mm. Of like, mm-hmm. how do you think about new models uh, for science? Um, I'm helping out with this 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 new science program. Uh-huh. Um, and it's like a way for um, it's like a fellowship, right? Basically, for people who are who have some ideas about what they want to try in biology, but okay. they're not like in a PhD program necessarily. Interesting. Yeah. I, I think that's a it's it's a it's but they want to pursue some independent idea mm-hmm. um, for for a short amount of time just to get the feasibility. Yeah. Uh, I I think. There's also like a lot of innovation happening in in funding. Um, you know, the Broad Institute, right? Yeah, was like super innovative. I think back in the day when it was formed, because um, it brought together this idea of like really large science, right? I think hmm. um, there was this thing that happened. I think like Vannevar Bush, like when he set up the NSF mm-hmm. in, in the fifties, yeah. um, you know, that he transitioned, there was a strong emphasis on investigator led science where like, you know, and which is important. Like, how do you like generate, like people, everybody has their own ideas about what is really they're passionate about. Yeah. And they're all like a bunch of basic science. Right. There's a lot of basic science questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a lot of how the scientific system funding organizations are grant organized in the United States. Yeah. And, and that's great. I mean, we really need that investment in basic science research. Right. Uh, but, and that's really apparent in biology, but if you look at physics and astronomy, 
there's also this extreme aspect of team science, right? Yeah, Where absolutely. you like tackle these really large problems. Yeah. And that like didn't really exist in biology. I mean, there was a the huh. human genome project, but right. I think like that sort of philosophy is a little bit antithetical to, you know, um, I mean, I mean, not exactly antithetical, but it's it's a little bit different than this sort of investigator led like yeah, you know, basic science directions. Got and it. I think we need both of them. And, you know, when the Broad was set up, there was some idea about doing these, like, large-scale science projects with bringing in lots of expertise and, um, you know, the community, like, focused on human health and disease. And that's been really successful. And I think there's a lot of experimentation now about, like, how do you empower such efforts um, now that that model is successful, right? And yeah. you, you see quite a lot of different, like, types of organizations being built. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah whether they're for-profit or non-profit, mm -hmm. I think, you know, there's a lot of money in investment in biotech right now, right? Yeah. And there is some interesting questions about basically, like, how you set up the model in a way that it's most success, it's both accessible and successful for the scientific community and people, but it can also tap into, like, you know, both the translational aspect of venture, but also like the fact that a lot of the successes in biotech are building off of like basic science research or like these sorts of innovations that happen at research institutes right. that don't quite get recaptured into the basic science endeavor. Right? Yeah, for and sure. So uh, I'm sure there are like lots of really innovative ways mm -hmm. to align those worlds yeah. such that like everybody wins or there's just more more things that happen yeah we're for sure seeing a lot of that which yeah. is nice to see um last question just because i know we gotta let you go um which is if you could give advice to your younger self or maybe give advice you know broadly writ to undergrads or grad students do you have any any kind of words of wisdom or even high schoolers kind of Yes, that's an that's a interesting question. I I actually think that um, one thing would be to um, yeah I I I I think if possible go out and talk to like people like if you're excited about something and yeah. or like many things go out and like reach out and talk to like the people doing research in that that area. I mean, yeah. I think it's easy when you're an undergrad to be very focused on yeah. or high school. You're like super, you're like yeah. everything is, you're like super focused on the now, right? Like on yeah. coursework or on like, you know, even if you're doing research, you're focused on that project. Right. But I think, um, you know, undergrad is like just it's such a special time for you to just take up. Yeah. Like so many new ideas. And also you have kind of some access, right? You have, you have, you're like at, you know, oftentimes at institutions where there's like really great people doing yeah. really great science. Yeah. And they'd love to talk to you about it if you just even ask them. Yeah. Um, and asking them what like, what the big questions in their field are and just getting a sense of like the bigger picture right. of the field or arc of science that you're interested in. Yeah. I mean, I feel like you never take that. I mean, I certainly didn't take that that seriously um, yeah. in undergrad. Because, you know, you're always just so focused on... <laughs> I certainly was. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. On, on the things at hand. And and um, being able to have that, like, introspection to, like, go back and take a step and, and just see, you know, see the patterns. And if you if you do that, maybe, like, 
you will, you can identify what's like what's like really important or what are like the really interesting questions, and that will really yeah. set you up. Yeah. If you want to go and well, no matter what you do, you 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 know you if you do science or if you do you know technology or venture, like I yeah. think it's all going to be really important to get get that bigger picture view. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I think I think it is true. Like it just when you're an undergrad, you just never. Oh my god. You're like. This two, you're like always focused on, you know, the I just, I just, set or, I deeply regret like, it. I just yeah. maxed out on classes yeah, every you maxed single out semester. On <laughs> exactly. And you're like super focused. Yeah. Uh, and you do research, but you're like, oh, I really want to get this research project to work or like, I need to get this next experiment to work. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even, even in, in grad school, even in gra- yeah, up exactly. until the past year or so, it's just been. Yeah. I think it's just super. And I, and you know, like. I think also like the system selects for that, you know. Yeah. Right. Like. Yeah. That's how you become successful, or yeah. like by whatever metric you're oh, successful. Yeah. Like yeah. you know, okay, you yeah. know, I, I, the system like selects for people who are good at doing that. Right. I'm and, drastically behind in physics because I've stuck my head out. I'm like, oh, like maybe you know, bio's kind of maybe an interesting field, but it's like, you know, you'd be screwed if you want to go back into physics now because it's you're, you're behind yeah. by yeah. you know a lot of time. Yeah. So, but but I do think it's important to. Because you just don't. Also, like oftentimes your your path is so like path your your path is so like path dependent. You know, yeah. like yeah, and absolutely. You might want to like get rid of that path dependence a little bit by. Yeah, yeah, yeah that it makes sense. Yeah, um, awesome. Um, all right, well, I'll say thank you so much. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah. It was really yeah. awesome. We appreciate it.